89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. And joining me is Stephanie Converi. She is the author of the book, After the Count. And she joins us now by the wonders of Zoom. How are you, Stephanie? Hi, thanks Thanks for having me. It is just wonderful having you on. And um, it's probably a, you know, a topic that we've talked about a few times on this show over the years, and that of boxing, its implications, what it means in society, but we're going to get into it in such a different way today, which I'm so looking forward to. Um, You've written this book, After the Count. Would you like to describe it for those who perhaps haven't read it as yet, what it is and, and the inspiration for you to write it? Yeah, sure. So After the Count is primarily an investigation into the death of a professional boxer, Davey Brown, in 2015. So Davey was a Sydney boy. He he wasn't a world champion or anything, but he was trying to, it's essentially trying to become one, trying to sort of succeed in his sport. And he died um, after being knocked out in the final round of a title fight. So like a regional title um, in 2015. And this story kind of hit the news um, at the time. It, it sort of became a flashpoint for debates about boxing as a sport, which is, you know, pretty common when something like this happens. Um, but for me personally, when I saw it, it was quite a startling thing because I had actually started training as a boxer a little bit um, earlier that year. Um, so seeing a guy who was about my age, he had a couple of young kids, um, he was, you know, he was obviously more advanced in the sport than me. I'm, I, I can tell you straight away, I'm a terrible boxer. <laughs> I, I, I really got a lot out of the sport, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later, but um, I was never very good. However, seeing somebody die in the sport while I was training in it really kind of um, drove home to me how dangerous the sport actually is. And I kind of couldn't get it out of my head. And so I started talking about it to the people that I was training with and it was amazing to me just how many people kind of dismissed it. They sort of said, you know, obviously it's tragic and it's bad, but it's just like one of those things. And I thought that was, I just was really worried about that. Like, what does it mean if that's how we treat an actual death in the sport? I know this is a violent sport, but surely we've all kind of got our ways of understanding that and have worked through that and can sort of talk about that. But actually I found the silence around that stuff really, really um, problematic. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to investigate what happened to Davey was to understand um, how we think about violence in society, but also how we take responsibility for these sports that actually involve people putting themselves at risk. Yeah. Uh, what was your understanding as you've gone through about why there was a silent around silence around this? Uh, I know that I think for for those perhaps outside of boxing, um, there's certainly not a silence around it. Oh, that's just brutal. Why on earth would they do it? Like these are the, you know, I remember my mum who's passed on now, but she was just like, that's just the worst, you know? Uh, uh, and so, so there's sort of an understanding from some of like, how, how, how on earth could you do it? And you're saying there's some silence in it. Did you end up sort of being able to put your finger on why there was that sort of silence and ability to say, look, that's just part of it? I think I think it's a, actually quite a complicated thing. So there's a whole there is to get straight to the really nitty gritty part. Boxing is violent. It's violence. It's violence turned into a sport. Um, I, I mean, I think it's very important to be clear that it is a sport. There are rules around it. There are kind of control mechanisms for it. So it's not meant to kill people. Um, at the same time, I think you can't escape the fact that it is about committing well not committing because that suggests a crime it's not a crime um and the law is very clear about that 
but it is about inflicting violence upon another person, trying to um, in, hurt another person. Um, so I think there is there is a level of not wanting to work through the morality of that um, within the sport, and I think I think it is it, because it's right on the edge of um, of sport and kind of beating someone up like it's right it really is it walks a knife edge morally politically socially in a lot of ways it's part of the reason why it's so interesting particularly to writers because it kind of it's a space that allows you to open up all of these really really sticky issues that I think we we often find very uncomfortable and so we don't want to engage with them because we don't want to see I think sometimes what that might mean for our understanding of ourselves does it mean I'm a bad person if I like to box like if I like if I if I get something physically emotionally out of this practice, what does that mean for me as a moral person? What does it mean for me as a um, as a woman? Or um, uh, and I think that that is very confronting. So lots of people lots of people shy away from confronting those parts of themselves. I think that's one of the reasons. But there are some more kind of um, less uh, deep. I think things that are happening there as well. There is a persistent refusal in the sporting community. It's changing and it is changing quite rapidly to recognise just how serious head injury is and how it occurs um, and what that means for some of these sports. So it's not just boxing that has a head injury problem, obviously. Um, we're seeing it happen, like it's becoming a massive issue in AFL now. It's been an issue in um, NFL in the States for years now. Um, there, are still, there are still people who deny that it is a problem. Um, one of the biggest issues with that is that a concussion is actually very poorly understood in sport. Um, education is improving, but there is no mandatory education for participants in sport about concussion, what it looks like, how to recognize if recognize it if you have it, how to treat it, um, what sorts of things that your trainers should be looking for if you've had a hard knock on the field. You don't have to hit your head to have concussion. It can be whiplash. It can be uh, just your brain just needs to move hard inside your skull for for you to have a concussion um, and also that these long-term impacts such as chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE um, which is progressive brain damage basically as a consequence of tiny little like proteins hardening in your brain that's the layperson's description of it I'm not a neurologist or a neuroscientist but that is that's pretty much tau proteins is what they are um, which causes progressive decline, neurological decline. That is something you don't see when you first start playing sport. You see that in 20 years' time. And the, the implications of that for anybody who plays regularly, whether you're a professional or an amateur or even just a novice, are quite significant. We, we need to be talking about that and how that changes, um, how that might actually change our sport. And that is really scary because sports sports teams, sporting communities are kind of like social glue in a lot of places. I mean, I've just started playing football um, since I, I moved to Melbourne at the start of last year in lockdown um, and have started training in football. And like that team, that is like, it's so all encompassing, you know, you've got training three times a week, you've got the social nights, you've got the, you know, the fixture, you've got to watch everyone. You spend your whole weekend and half your week yeah. in this, in this community. So what does it mean if you say, well, the, the, the very game that you're playing may actually be really dangerous to all of you now, not, you know, whether you're good or not, and, and could have, you know, very, very profound um, repercussions later in life. So this huge, there's a huge kind of social thing underpinning that too. Yeah. Um, and then, sorry to like babble on about this, but the other, the other part of it 
um, I think is that there's there's a very gendered element to violence and to violent sport and to, to the contact sport generally. Um, and I do think there is a sort of idea, particularly in a lot of men and some women who, who box and play these sports too, because gender roles are very um, strong in society that you have to be kind of tough and you have to be able to, to do these really hard physical things. And if that means that you have to continue playing sport while you've got a head injury, some people just do that. And the idea that you could that you should pull out of a game because you're feeling a bit funny in the head, that jars with a lot of people's understanding of what their role as a sports person is. So there's so many kind of tangles here um, that mean we find it very difficult to confront the reality of head injury, but also like what that violence in the in our sports really means. I think there's possibly even the argument that it's not just you know, if I get hit in, hit in the head during a sports encounter that, oh, well, that's, I'm not tough. It's actually that I'm weak. Uh, that, that's been the pervading sort of um, understanding, I think, for decades. And I think it has started changing of recent times, but it, it's still a part of it. Uh, I, you know, I know when I'm growing up and watching the, the AFL, it was all about the toughest were the ones that kept going. And they were the ones that, you know, people would even say, even in the last 10 years, I remember people saying, oh, well, it's not like the good old days when they were really played football and they just got on with it. There was this sort of indication that unless you, you copped a beating, unless you were going through something that was dangerous, um, you were actually weak. It wasn't even just that you were tough. And I think that's something that I think is at least changing of recent times. Am I correct in assuming that, Stephanie? I think so. I think the more we are taught about... Um, about head injury and how it occurs and how it doesn't matter how many muscles you have or how much padding you wear on your head. It's about your brain. Your brain is soft regardless of who you are and how tough you are. Um, and it can be, it can be very badly injured very easily. Um, I think, I think the more we educate people about that, the, the more that is changing. And you've seen, you see, um, well, we have seen in the last couple of years, people speaking out about that. So in, in After the Count, I interviewed um, Ian Roberts from the Rabbitohs, who is one of the few people who living who has um, been diagnosed with brain injury as a consequence of his playing career. But he's also, I think he's really the only one I've seen um, speak out as, as emphatically about what it means to live with this um, and how he, and he does attribute it to his playing career. Um, and like he, he has been a pioneer in a lot of ways, I think, um, in the sport. Um, so I think, so, so it is kind of significant that he'd be the first, like one of the first to kind of, to speak out about that. Um, and I hope, and I hope that that has changed a lot of people's kind of perception of, um, what it means to be, um, well, particularly to be a man and to be, um, have, have sustained an injury like that, that does have repercussions later in life. Um, there was also, um, Paddy McCartan speaking about his concussions and what that, what the like long effects of those concussions meant for him and in his day-to-day -day life a few years ago. He was talking about he could he couldn't even spend time in a cafe. His girlfriend was like basically his carer the whole time. And this is a really young guy who was like a really key player for um, I think he played for a couple of teams and and had a, had what everybody thought was this amazing future ahead of him. He had to quit because because the effects of it were meant that he couldn't, he, there was no way he could train because he could barely function in day-to-day -day life. So I, I think people seeing, people speaking out like that, providing an example and really putting a kind of um, uh, an experience to the injury 
that resonates for people has been really important. But what what I would like to see, I think, is an acknowledgement within the community, within communities, sporting communities, that this is something we have to collectively care about and take care of people as a group. Like that the the culture of team of the team of the sporting team, particularly, but also a gym can be so supportive and so uplifting and can be so much more than you would get if you're just kind of running on your own in the street, you know, or around the park. Like, why can't we use that community scaffolding to take care of each other within that space as as well as kind of encouraging each other to succeed? That's what I don't quite understand. Yeah. We're going to be back uh, with Stephanie Convery in just a moment. She's the author of the book, After the Count. We're talking about the impact of concussion and uh, what we need to do about it. A few questions I want to throw at Stephanie in a couple of minutes' time. How do we start actually balancing out in society this risk versus reward concept when it comes to sport? Um, what do we need to do? Should we actually be banning some of these things? What, what do we still need to understand about this uh, as we change and shape society for the better? Uh, there are some of the questions I want to throw at Stephanie next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton. Stephanie Convery is my guest. She's the author of the book, After the Count. Now, this focuses around the uh, death of Davy Brown Jr. Uh, He died at the end of a a boxing match. And uh, certainly this was the focus for you, Stephanie, as you wanted to understand and explore having just started boxing yourself. And and here he was, a, a, a professional boxer. Um, and then it started expanding, I suppose, a bit broader than just boxing to an understanding of concussion generally and brain injury generally and, and through sports as we go forward. Um, before we sort of explore perhaps some more of the, the, the broader aspects of concussion and sport as we've already been doing partly, um, specifically about the, the Davy Brown part of this, um, did you get to some resolutions yourself of what did happen, why it happened specifically for his incident? Yeah, so one of the very striking things about Davy's case in particular that um, that really started to emerge, not just from my early conversations with his family, but also um, during the inquest into his death, which happened um, a couple of years ago in Sydney, was that everybody who had a, like a role that required some kind of responsibility towards the fighter in the room, and there were about six people who did, all of them either believed that nothing wrong had happened, that there was no reason to stop the fight. Um, and I can talk a little bit about why that was a significant thing um, in this particular case. But they also all tried to kind of pass the buck. Now, I don't want to say that they didn't believe, that they don't believe that that is that, that it was somebody else's responsibility to stop the fight to make sure that Davy was okay. The thing, Davy, Davy had been knocked down in the 11th round of the fight he had fallen to the ground on one knee and he had had an eight count over him. For anybody who's not very familiar with boxing, that's that's the moment that the referee comes over and like gets, counts to eight literally and the fighter has eight seconds to stand up and start boxing again. They usually take the full eight seconds because it's a little bit of a rest and they've usually had a pretty hard knock at that point. But that's the point where you have to kind of assess whether the boxer is okay to continue. The referee assessed that he was okay to continue. He got up and kept fighting and then got knocked back into the ropes. That, at that point, the bell rang and he went back to his corner. But if you watch the tape of his fight, he stumbles as he goes back to the corner. He's, he was not very responsive to his trainers in the corner. He stood up and he fell back against the padding and then went out for the final round and like 
16 seconds into the final round was knocked out. He barely even threw a punch. He was very, very badly concussed, basically, at the end of the 11th round. And the question throughout the inquest was, should, he, should the fight have been stopped then? And if so, who should have stopped it? So there was a lot of, there were a lot of people in the room who, who had the either formal or informal ability to stop the fight. There was the trainer, they could have thrown in the towel. There was the referee, the doctor who was beside ringside. Every fight needs to have a doctor ringside. Um, he could have stopped the fight. Uh, there are also two government inspectors. Um, they are in New South Wales. They're appointed by the Combat Sports Authority to basically oversee the administrative and legal aspects of the fight. So there were two people there that had, they had the ability to stop the fight. The fight could have also been stopped by a police officer if they thought it was getting out of hand. Though that wasn't really something that kind of came into question in this particular instance. None of them did. None of them stopped the fight. None of them um, said that they thought that Davey at the time needed the fight to be stopped. Um, even though it, later it came out of the inquest, it was quite apparent. And it's apparent to anybody who I think saw the tape, um, particularly, I mean, that certainly when I first saw the tape, I thought, why did they not stop that fight? Like he's wobbling, he, he's concussed. But actually most of them didn't understand what concussion looked like. Mm. That was another key issue. So, now I've lost where I was. <laughs> it's all right. It was more about the, the conclusion for you of, I suppose, of that story specifically. What, yeah. So what should have happened? So basically um, they all, everybody kept passing the buck. And to me, it felt like actually everybody here should have been taking responsibility for, for Davey's welfare. There was a certain sense of, I don't want to be the one who's going to get in there and stop it. But I mean, there, there were reasons for that, right? Like the, it's pretty intimidating to get into the ring at the end of a title fight. And he was about to win on points. So there was, there were a whole lot of like complicating factors in this particular um, fight, but also there's a whole lot of drunk people like shouting for, you know, the fight to, to be finished and for Davey to win. Um, and you don't want to be the one who gets in there and goes, no, no, it's over. Like he's lost now because you've stopped the fight and he's, automatically the loser even though you thought he was about to win nobody wants to be that guy but also nobody felt like it was their responsibility to stop the fight they all said it was somebody else's responsibility to stop the fight where where is the sense of like responsibility that you take on to say I am going to look after that person that person's welfare is my responsibility and I will step in if I think that they're in danger yeah. but nobody wants to do that and I wonder why like we should have a, I, I kind of want to see a culture of care in the sporting community. And I, and I feel like that, um, particularly in boxing, is, is this there somewhere? There are, some, there are some people who do care and there are some people who show that and who really look after their fighters, but there are a lot of people who don't. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and that's worrying. Yeah. Is there an element that's, uh, there's a difference around some of these combat sports, as you said, that um, if you were to, to say, well, actually he's, too concussed right now therefore he loses um whereas i go okay well look at something like even you know cricket over summer they've introduced something here that if you are concussed you get replaced by somebody else now obviously it's an individual sport you in boxing you can't replace them but the, the outcome possibly could be okay well if we we believe medically this can't happen then the fight's a draw or whatever is it because that boxing actually is literally about that violence that we talked about before, it, the intent is to try and knock somebody out. The intent is to, in essence, in a, a way, make them not be able to function physically. That is the issue. It, it, is that actually where we come to the cracks of, of why boxing and you know MMA or whatever else it might be 
has different issues than other sports? I do think that is the, the fact that knockout, like unconsciousness or the inability to continue is, a, is part of the rules. Um, that is a winning, like to knock somebody out is a winning move. Mm. Yes, that is, that is, a, that isn't, I mean, that is what makes the sport what it is. Mm. It's also what makes the sport so dangerous. Yep. Um, and in this case, obviously drove um, people to push the sport, push the match to continue when it shouldn't have. Um, so, yeah, it's a problem. I mean, I think there would be, like the boxing community would find it very, very, very difficult, if not impossible to conceive of the sport without the knockout. Um, and you hear it in, particularly in the old hands, in the voices of the old hands who've been around for a long time and they say, you know, yeah, but people just want to see the knockout. They want to see blood. That's why they're there. Um, and I think you have to accept that that is actually part of it. Um, no matter how you sort of spin it, it's violence and and the embrace of that and the kind of like getting into the kind of into the headspace of that, that's part of the reason why people are there watching it. Um, and that's, that's, that's hard. That's really hard. At the same time, there is something to be said for the training and the, the participation in it. Like you do get something out of a sport like that because it's violent that you don't get out of other sports. And, um, and it, I think if we are interested in understanding humanity and what it means to be a person and, and all the different aspects of that, then something, then, then combat sport actually has a place. Um, that's hard. I, like, I, I recognise that that's really difficult for a lot of people to kind of come to terms with and it's perfectly valid to say, actually, I don't, th I don't agree with that. Um, but personally, as somebody who has played the sport and also sees it as a really problematic sport, um, I certainly feel like I understand myself and, um, and people better for having engaged in it and hope that at least, I mean, hopefully this book will help some people understand why that is. Yeah. Um, you mentioned for yourself, you know, you actually participated in boxing and and uh, certainly as far as I understand, not as long as somebody like a, a Davy Brown, a junior or anything like that, but you actually found that uh, in the end, you yourself had uh, some some head knocks and some various understanding around that. Can you talk into that for us? Yeah, um, I have had concussion, I think three times. One time I was not really sure, but I took two weeks off, um, a full two weeks off training just in case. Um, the first time I woke up the day after a sparring match and it wasn't even like a particularly hard on sparring. Um, and I was, had this like uncontrollable nausea and headache and it was just horrendous. And I reckon it took me 24 hours, 48 hours to really accept that I had a concussion. Um, and I had, I had been reading about concussion. I had been like investigating Davy's death. So it wasn't like I wasn't aware of what was going on. It was just like, I had this sort of blind spot. No, of course I don't have concussion. I'm, yeah. you know, how could that hit have, yeah. Um, so that, that sort of set off this chain of events for me that was quite confronting. I had to get a CT scan um, and that showed up nothing. And then, no, sorry, it did show up something. It showed up uh, what looked like a calcium deposit in my brain. I had to go and get an MRI on that. That showed up something else and then ended up going to a neurologist because the suspicion was that I had like a calcifying brain. It was a terrifying experience. And this is a period of like a month and a, and a mm. half. So I, I am somebody who lives by, by the use of their brain. I'm not 
I, I mean, obviously I play a lot of sport, but I'm a writer. Like it's an intellectual pursuit. I'm sure maybe there are some people who, who don't kind of care that much about their brains. Maybe I think that's less common these days than perhaps it used to be. But for me, it was like, what if I can't write? Like, what if I can't do the thinking that I need to do to do my job? Um, it was terrifying. And as I mean, spoiler alert, but as it turns out, my brain is fine and there was a glitch on the scan. But that period of fear around what what it might mean to be permanently impaired or to have a progressive um, illness of some kind that that meant that I would be that I knew that I would be impaired later, much more so than now. Um, was really like it was like a massive bucket of cold water and to be honest it made it very difficult to train because I was constantly thinking about head injury and I was constantly thinking am I going to feel like that am I going to accidentally get hit in a way that I don't expect um, get knocked out or get very very badly concussed and not and not be okay in two weeks yeah Um, it's it's frightening yeah and clearly something a sport like boxing is going to be more susceptible to concussions than say something like basketball having said that uh, that's where I suffered my concussion right as I was playing basketball and and just had a a freak incident where I ended up horizontal in the air for about two or three feet off the ground and then fell and slamming my head and and haven't experienced that previously but that was enough for me uh, amidst with a number of broken ribs to say look look this is even though I've played this for 30 years of my life um, I'm actually out now um, and that was sort of this moment to, to say this is where it is. From your perspective and almost from a community perspective, where is the risk-reward line here? How do, we, how do we judge and understand? Um, you know, individually, I can do that. You did that with boxing as well. We eventually got to a risk-reward factor of, well, the love of this sport actually doesn't equate to the risk factor of it, so I'm out. How do we do that society, though, in a, in a societal way? I think that's a really good question. I mean, obviously it's much easier to kind of do in a personal level because you're you're just dealing with your own circumstances. Um, I don't know, I don't know the answer, but I suspect the answer is in that community culture of care that I was talking about. Um, I do think that the way that our society is so competitive sets us up to think of other people as kind of um, our well, yeah, our competition, not our enemy necessarily, but in a boxing match, yeah, they will they will frame it like that. Um, and so I kind of think that that it's it really does require deep societal change or a big shift in that. I don't I don't know how you do that, how one person kind of says, well, this is what we should do. But what I try to do in the communities that I'm involved in now, in the sporting communities that I'm involved in, is first of all, talk straight up about it. Concussion is dangerous. Do we do we have concussion education? Have we got protocols? What are they? Does everybody know them? Do, does everybody understand why this is really important? And to kind of talk talk not only inclusively but also about like supporting your teammates when they do get injured, so you're not encouraging them onto the field before they're ready. Keep checking in with them, making sure that they they are. Um, feeling good they're not you know if they do get a hard knock how are you feeling what's it it's okay it's okay if you can't keep playing you know it's fine actually it's better you know we we don't want you to be permanently injured we want you to be having a good time I mean, most of most people who play sport aren't professionals I, I do think once you get into a professional 
situation, things become much more complicated because there's a lot of money involved in professional sport and that can drive people and push people, particularly players who maybe want to be successful in the sport and want to be elite but um, are being pressured by sponsors, by you know, vested interests to continue to play and continue to push themselves beyond their natural capabilities because of um, because of the money that's involved with them. Mm. I think that is really complicated and I don't see how you can change that without changing the structure of the economy, really. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, I mean, that's that's a little bit beyond... Quite, yeah, for sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, like a book, but... Yeah, exactly. So, so as we're talking about that, I, I, I'm wondering, is there segments of society that are more influential to, to create that care, uh, that, that community of care that you're talking about? Uh, is, it, is it politicians? Is it parents? Is it um, sports administrators? Is it the players themselves? Where do you think the most influential, if you know, we were to, Stephanie can wave a magic wand and mm. say, all right, there's one segment of community that I'm going to suddenly switch into. Um, community care is actually going to be their focus as they look through the sporting lens here rather than competition or whatever else it is. That'll be the secondary parts of it. Which one do you think would be the most influential? Personally, I think the players, mm. the people who actually do the sport, they're the ones who are at risk. They're the ones who need to look after each other. They're the ones who need to be saying to the administrators, to the sponsors, to the people who um, pull the strings but don't actually get on the field. And I'm talking mostly teams here, but I think in gyms, like in, in boxing gyms, the people who are training, they're the ones who need to band together and say, this is what we want. We want, like, yes, winning is good, but we want to be good at this and we don't want to be sick. We don't want to be injured. And if we are injured, we want to be treated properly when we are. We don't want to be pushed into things that, are going to be very, very bad for us. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that kind of requires a consciousness building within sports communities um, to kind of have happen. I mean, you see, like, you see when in the Black Lives Matter movement, when um, the footballers in America all kind of took the knee um, and sort of uh, showed their allegiance to uh, um, a particular kind of political moment, that was so powerful because these are the people that we're supposed to look up to, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, again, it's different if somebody is a figurehead in a, in a sport or an industry than if you're just, you know, running around with your mates in the local footy team. But at the same time, if the local footy team banded together and said, we're not getting out on the field until you give us proper concussion education, that would be huge. Yeah. That would be a really big deal. And they and and I think if that happened, the you know administrators of the team would be like, oh, okay, well we'll do it. We want you to play. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you right. can make a lot of change if you do that. Yeah, it's great. Um, as we get to a couple of final questions here, Stephanie, uh, my sense from what you're saying is, um, just banning certain sports or banning parts of sports doesn't seem to be the way forward. Am I reading that right, or, or is there a place where you would say? I would ban this part of it. You know, maybe maybe it's boxing has to have helmets or whatever else it might be. I'm not sure what is banning actually a way forward for, for any of this. Do you think? Um, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. No, I mean, I don't think that means that the sport shouldn't that sports don't need to change necessarily. Um, I think that when you do change something like that that is so embedded in particular community cultures you need to do that with the community. Um, I don't think top-down enforced change ever really works the way that it's intended to work. I think it just just pits people against each other and then creates more division. And really what we need here is like community cohesion. So, So no, I don't think that's the answer. However, I do think that a lot of sports are 
either in the process of or need to have a reckoning around this stuff um, and around the, cult, the, the cultures of care that they have or don't have in those sports. Um, and you sort of, we're starting to see it in some sports now. And, and really the places where it's happening, it is player led. Like it is, it has to have the, the buy-in and the kind of push from the players to change. Um, and after all, they're the ones who, who we should be caring about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one question we ask pretty much every author who comes on the program, and I'm going to finish with it here because I, I think it's a, a good summary and hopefully a, a, an aim of what, what it is, which, which is as the, someone puts the last page of that book down, uh, what are you hoping they actually walk away with? What, what are you hoping once they put that last page of your book down that they're actually thinking through, going to action, whatever it might be? Um, I hope that they think that maybe sport is not as simple as it might look from the outside, that maybe our relationships with our bodies are not as, um, as easily understood as we would like to assume that they are, but also that maybe that they have some power to change things too, that, that they can get, um, they can get involved and they can speak out and they can, they can make change happen. That, I mean, the last lines of my book pretty much speak to that. We have the power to change things. We just have to have the will. And that's what I hope this book will do for people. Yeah. Stephanie Convery, author of the book After the Count, we thank you so much for your time, giving so much of it to us to, to talk through these topics again today. Uh, we wish you all the best with this book and all the other writing things that I'm sure you're going to be uh, putting out in time as well as you, you already have uh, over many, many, many uh, periods of time too. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. This is 89.9 The Light.